This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, opinion leaders, and authors. Season 10, Episode 9, The Newsom Recall Postmortem, talking with Dan Walters. Dan Walters, political opinion columnist with Cal Matters, a Sacramento-based independent online news organization. Dan brings almost 60 years of journalism experience covering the big political stories in Sacramento and California as a whole. He's covered the last nine California governors, starting with Pat Brown in the early 1960s, Ronald Reagan, Jerry Brown, George Duke Majan, Pete Wilson, Gray Davis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jerry Brown again, and finally, Gavin Newsom. Dan joins us today from his office in Sacramento. Hi, Dan, and welcome to the show. Hi to you, Beck. Well, very good. Dan, let's get right to it. Gavin Newsom won the recall 64% to 36, which in fact is better than his 62% winning margin in 2018. Does his recall victory mean a renewed mandate to solve our big problems like homelessness, bring in single-payer health care, and curb wildfires? Or was his recall victory a one-off victory that doesn't translate into new political capital? Well, I think having won and won so decisively, he does have, I guess, a renewed political capital and I guess a mandate to govern. I'm not sure he has a mandate to do all the things you mentioned, all of which have problems of their own in terms of being able to be approved and installed and implemented and everything. But he certainly has a new lease on political life, probably will win another term a year from now. I'm almost certainly, I would say, win another term a year from now, unless he does something really bad again, like go to the go to the a French restaurant and have it without a mask. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, he's he's free to act now. now. But there's also another dimension to this, and that is that the people who helped him win this election, I mean, go back a couple of months, he, he was in trouble, mm-hmm. and he was worried about it. His people around him were genuinely worried he was going to lose this recall election. And so they, fortunately for them, Larry Elder came on the scene, and they were able to make him the, the goat, as it were, and then turn out the troops, and he won very decisively. But in doing so, he incurred political debts. And it was very evident from the reaction to the election, particularly from unions, that they now expect him to repay that debt by doing some things they want to be done. Mm-hmm. So he has to work his way through that because some of these debts would be very expensive to pay for. And I'll give you an example. It's something you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. The California Nurses Association is the main push for single-payer health care in California. And they made it very clear after the election, okay, Gavin, we helped you stave off this recall now go back and deliver on your promise that you made during your campaign in 2018 to have single-payer health care in california that's a promise that he's kind of edged around he's kind of backed off and said it's aspirational it didn't mean you were going to do it immediately Mm -hmm. and what he's been doing is kind of expanding free medical care if you will through the state medic Medi-Cal program, which is Medicaid in California, Medi-Cal, right. to new groups of people at state expense. These are people that the federal government will not help pay for, such as undocumented immigrants. Mm-hmm. 
So he's kind of been edging along a few, one group at a time, young, undocumented, then older, undocumented, and so forth. And he claims this is all towards the idea of universal health care. By the way, he's changed his tune from single-payer health care to universal health care because it's common knowledge, and they acknowledge there's no way you could ever have the state of California take over all health care in California because so much of it is basically controlled by the federal government. Right. In fact, the federal government pays 50% of all the health care in California. State pays and local governments pay another, I think, about 80%, and then mm. consumers pay the last 20 or something like that. It's about $400 billion a year, by the way. For the California. Total, total bill. Yeah, mm -hmm. for California. So you'd have to have the feds would have to give you give you control over Medicare, over military health care, over civilian federal employee health care. That's not going to happen. Yeah, that's okay. not going to happen. So you have to kind of say, what is what is the real goal? Is it universal health care or is it single payer health care? Mm -hmm. Single payer health care is not going to occur in California. Nobody can put a pathway to it. But it's possible to get to universal care if the big if, if you're willing to spend the money. Mm -hmm. How much more money? probably maybe $50 billion more a year or something like that, where you could pick up everybody who is now not covered by some sort of health care program. Do we have uh, Do we have that kind of money, Dan? Does the state no, of California? No. Not without raising taxes, it doesn't have the kind of money. And that's the thing. So he's basically used the surge in revenues, the post-pandemic surge in revenues, to do this. But that surge on the natural will sometime will retard. It'll go back to right. more of a normal revenue flow. And you probably can't do it without raising taxes of some kind, which is of course what the sponsors of what the sponsors of this thing, the, the backers of this thing would settle for universal healthcare probably, but that would also, and they would want to raise taxes. Now and, you say that's, that's, the, thing, that's now, the dilemma. Now you say raise taxes. California has one of the highest, if not the highest, tax burden in the nation. Our state income tax rate is up around 13% for the higher levels, whereas our neighbor, Nevada, has no state income tax. Yeah. So just to give you one example there, our sales tax are some of the highest in the country. Our gasoline tax is some of the highest in the country. So if they are, where are they going to find the $50 billion? Where are they going to increase taxes? Because they can't do it for income taxes. They can't do it for gasoline taxes. They can't do it for sales taxes. So what taxes could, what taxes are left to increase? Well, first of all, that $50 billion is off the top of my head. Let's put it, it's a lot of money, but whether it's $50 billion or $20 billion or something, I'd have to go back. I've had the calculations on this a couple of years ago. The estimate goes back to a, there was actually a single-payer bill introduced in the legislature, and there was some actual real work done on figuring out the cost. And the cost would have been, if you pick up all the federal money, if you pick up all the money employers are now paying for their employees, you pick up all the state money and you pick up all the local money already being spent, it would be about $100 billion to Gosh. complete the, the game. Mm -hmm. These numbers are, are, are not set in stone, but it's a big number, whatever it is. It's a very big number. Now, where would you get it? I don't know. You're right. California doesn't have the highest tax burden in the country. It has maybe the third or fourth or fifth highest if you measure it as a percentage of personal income, which is the way it's really usually done. So we are high. We're high on income. We're higher on sales. We're high on something. We're medium high on property taxes, despite Proposition 13. The reason being that property values are so much higher in California, even a relatively low property tax rate raises about mm -hmm. $60 billion a year in, proper, in property taxes. So where would you get it? Well, 
the only way it could be done politically, if it could be done at all, would be to hit the highest income taxpayers again. That has all sorts of problems unto itself because that revenue base is very volatile based on aren't they already gains and, and so aren't forth. they already getting it from capital gains because periodically for instance that big windfall that the state had earlier this year came as a result of the windfall and capital gains that they were yeah. getting from the the top taxpayers so they're already you know there's kind of through the capital gains mechanism the wealthy pay much bigger share of taxes when they sell their stocks in startup companies and yeah. Silicon Valley, biotech companies, et cetera. But let's, let's move on, Dan, for a second. You know, I'm thinking the Republicans gave Gavin Newsom a gift. They gave yes, him, they and they gave him, they didn't, it didn't start out that way, but they gave him a gift. They rocketed him to national prominence with a 64% margin. What were they thinking well, the, the recall wasn't started by the Republican Party or anybody, any Republican figures. The recall was a kind of a more of a grassroots thing, the original the origination of the recall campaign. It took off with the infamous French laundry incident last November. And then the Republicans kind of jumped on it because it really did have legs. And mm -hmm. it, was, it was it was looked like it was a viable thing. And they said, hey, we can we can ride the coattails of this and maybe maybe make ourselves a little more relevant than we've been in the past. And then, of course, it reversed itself in the last couple of months of this whole thing. And then Newsom won his big thing. The gift was Larry Elder. <laughs> right. have, had Larry Elder not got involved in this thing as the leading Republican, I think Newsom would have still won. I've never, I never doubted that he would win in the end, but I think his margin of victory would have been maybe 10 points less or something like that. Really? I mean, it would be, yeah. I mean, that's what really got the troops out. This was all based on, re, on voter turnout. The reason he was in trouble was low voter turnout among Democrats, projected by the polls. Once he got Larry Elder as a foil, and once they ramped it all up and said, if you, don't, if you Democrats don't vote for me, we're going to have a governor named Larry Elder. That's what got the Democrats energized. They turned out and, and he won. Mm -hmm. So that was the gift. The gift was Larry Elder, who, who was a gift from Larry Elder, not a gift from the Republican Party, <laughs> basically. So it, it happened. Okay. So the question is, what? go back to what happens now. Well, he is going to be under pressure from the people who helped him win this thing to fulfill their agendas. They all have agendas. Mm -hmm. Single-payer health care or universal health care being one of them. They're universal education. These are all things that he has said he wants to do right. in the past something more significant about the homeless problem, be more proactive in terms of preventing highly destructive wildfires, about the water supply. I mean, these are all these issues that are kicking around. For instance, on the homelessness issue, starting in January, you know better than I, starting in January, isn't there a Medi-Cal reform which is coming down the road whereby homeless people or homelessness is going to be redefined as a health issue. The lack of actually having shelter is going to be defined as a chronic health problem, thereby opening up Medi-Cal services even more so to the homeless population. That's one area. Coming back to your point about wildfires, you know, the LAO, the Legislative Analyst Office, has criticized the governor for not having a strategic plan for homelessness, number one, nor for having a strategic plan on wildfires. 
And I know there are a couple of organizations around the state that are that are trying to put together strategic plans to present to the governor because we don't have a strategic plan on wildfire. So, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, those two issues are going to will be front and center for Governor Newsom and his uh, in his renewed 18 months in office. Yeah, and they're obviously serious issues, and they rise at, they're right near the top of what the public would say are the more pressing issues facing California. The answer to your question is there is an effort to try to have a more kind of a whole-person approach to not only the homeless, but all people who are, have to be on Medi-Cal to integrate services and look at the and you know break down the silos of social welfare programs and medical programs and education programs and try to integrate them together. Plus, on the homelessness issue, they're going to spend a lot of money simply on home, put people in rooms rather than being out on the street. And there's always a however, right? These are enormously expensive things. They're making these financial commits on the assumption that there's not going to be a recession, that the money is going to keep rolling in income taxes. In fact, you go back to the previous point, the top 1% of taxpayers, and that's about 150,000 tax returns out of 15 million tax returns. Mm. The top 1% of those tax returns in terms of income pay half of the income taxes. Amazing. And so for about a third of the entire state budget. Amazing. And half of the income taxes comes from 150,000 families, I guess you'd say, because they're mostly joint returns, in a state of 40 million people. That's a very narrow base upon which to base expenditures in the long run because their incomes are tied to capital gains and those capital gains go up and down like yo-yo mm -hmm. and it's it's called volatility and if anything the tax system of california is becoming more volatile over time and therefore if you make permanent spending commitments on yes. a volatile for revenue source, you're asking for trouble. And we've been in trouble in the past because of that. And the danger of that trouble gets worse and worse with every passing year because we make more commitments and the volatility level grows and become more dependent upon that handful of people for the revenues. And then we stagger from budget crisis to budget crisis from year to year. And that's not a, that's again, that's not a sustainable long-term economic plan. But raising taxes overall in California, I think, is is probably not a, a viable proposition either. Again, given our already very high income tax rate, gasoline tax, and sales tax. But let's come back to Gavin Newsom's future, because in the closing days of the recall campaign, Vice President Kamala Harris was here in town campaigning for him. And of course, Governor Newsom and Kamala Harris go way back to San Francisco when Gavin was the mayor of San Francisco. And of course, Kamala Harris was the district attorney. Their political future was really defined at that point, and they've been allies and friends since that time. Now, since Kamala Harris has become vice president, like many news vice presidents, she's had a rocky time of it just adjusting to that new role. There have been numerous polls that have showed that there's very little appetite or support to see her at this point as a candidate in 2024 to succeed Joe Biden, for instance. As a result of Gavin Newsom having won the 64% victory, and notwithstanding the fact that he and Kamala Harris are, are friends and campaign together, what do you think his future is for the 2024 Democratic nomination should Joe Biden decide not to run? 
Well, I don't think he's going to be running for president in 2024. Let's put it that way. Look, Joe Biden winning and Kamala Harris winning in 2020 put a big roadblock in Gavin Newsom's political career, if indeed, and he won't admit that he is, if indeed he's interested in becoming president of the United States. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just a roadblock. If Ga- Biden doesn't run, Kamala Harris, of course, would be, no doubt about that. And there might be others. But Gavin Newsom does not have a national base of political operations. He hasn't gone out and cultivated a national base. He's become well known because of this recall, mm-hmm. uh, either positively or negatively. But he's not he's not laid the groundwork for a 2024 presidential run at all. I think as a practical matter, he's blocked out of 2024. I just don't think it can happen. I think he that his if he wants to move ahead in his political career, he needs to run for the United States Senate and win. Mm-hmm. He needs to do what Jerry Brown couldn't do in 1982, which is to move from the governorship to a Senate seat as a base of uh, as a political base that then puts you into the national political scene mm-hmm. and makes you put you into the presidential lineup of some kind. Without that, I think he just he'll be an ex-governor. 2026 and who cares right mm-hmm. uh, just uh, it just doesn't work so if he wants to do that he has to assume that diane feinstein will retire and that he can run for that senate seat in 2024 and shift his whole political career to washington stranger things could happen and of course who would know better than you because you've followed the last nine california governors <clears throat> and since the early 1960s and the only one who actually became president was Ronald Reagan. It took him two or three goes to to actually translate his California support into becoming the Republican nominee. He tried in 68 half-heartedly. 76, he challenged Jerry Ford, rather, unsuccessfully. And then in 1980, that nomination, that wasn't a cakewalk either. So having been governor of California, Ronald Reagan didn't have that easy a time in getting the Republican nomination. So, and he's the only, he's the only governor of California in the last 60 years who made that transition. So I guess I'd have to agree with you that the pathway for Gavin Newsom, particularly in light of Kamala Harris being the vice president, is not a clear, clear shot for him by any means, certainly in 2024. But he could go to the Senate Mm -hmm. and wait for 2028 Mm-hmm. Or even think twenty thirty two. I mean, it's, he's not that he's not a, an old man after all. But I don't know whether he wants to. Mm-hmm. You know, but you have to assume, in a way, that he must because why else would he have spent all that time doing nothing as lieutenant governor, waiting to become governor? <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, <laughs> so what? If you if you don't want to go beyond that. What's the whole point of the situation? Yeah. Are you just going to go back to running your winery? Yeah. I, mean- I can't imagine that he is not interested in the job. Of course, all politicians like to play coy at times about their presidential ambitions. Oh, of course they do. I think he, like most other politicians, is playing that coy game. 
But I have no doubt in my heart of hearts that that he longs to be on that national stage. But you're right. He's on the Sacramento stage. He's on the California stage. And notwithstanding the fact that we have 40 million people here in California, we have 52 electoral votes, which is 20% of what you need, of the 270 you need in the Electoral College to become president. He's certainly got a good base, but he's still got quite a way to go to translate that base into a national platform. And as you said, he hasn't laid the groundwork nationally in a way that Kamala Harris has, having run for president before unsuccessfully. I mean, he, if, if Gavin Newsom, he would be out there going to chicken dinners in Iowa and that kind of stuff that you do to go make a national name for yourself. And he's done zero of that. Yes. You know, he, he has not done anything about that. Now, he's been preoccupied, obviously, with the COVID for the last year and a half. I think the the key to the whole thing is he gets reelected next year easily probably. Mm-hmm. Then what? And then he 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 has to if he's going to say I want to do something after being governor of California, then he has to start doing something almost immediately after that. The next election is 2024. He isn't going to be running for president. There's mm-hmm. just no way. He saw Jerry Brown flop around trying to run for president when he shouldn't have been running for president yes. and and he's not going to he's not going to waste to do a kamikaze run of some kind that only leaves one thing one thing and one thing only and that's to run for the US Senate 2024 on the assumption that Diane Feinstein will be giving up her seat or maybe even get her to give it up before that appoint, appoint himself or or make a deal with the lieutenant governor to appoint him, however that works. Well, in fact, it was Willie Brown, the sage of the sage of Le Central restaurant in San Francisco, who actually recommended that Gavin Newsom do that, simply appoint himself to fill out Kamala Harris's seat. But Gavin didn't take that take that advice. Let's come back to the Republicans because this has been a it's like I said, the Republicans gave him a gift unintentionally. And again, when we look at the party registration here in California, where at uh, 41, 43% Democrat, we're 31% independent, and what is it, 21, 22% Republican? We yeah, don't. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's low 20s anyway. Low 20s. There are no statewide Republican office holders. Some seven or eight. Republican seats down in Orange County, Southern California, changed hands in 2018. What does the future hold for the Republican Party, given the fact that you've got these two opposing wings? You've got the cultural warriors of the Republican Party who seem to be focused on abortion, marriage equality, gun rights, and social justice in opposition to social justice. And then you also then you have the moderate Republicans, Kevin Faulkner or John Cox, who seem to be, you know, pro-business and trying to play down the cultural warriors. What What's the future? What does the future hold for the Republican Party, Dan, in California? Nothing good. <laughs> oh, Nothing good. They the weaker they get, the weaker they become, because mm-hmm. then you have it just that's it's a snowball rolling downhill, basically. And they're still rolling down the hill. Maybe they they may have even hit bottom. It's hard to say. They have to hope that the Democrats screw up, basically, mm-hmm. and and that they also develop some sort of a candidate, an Arnold Schwarzenegger or someone who can kind of come to their rescue, be a transitional figure who could kind of overcome the party's weaknesses by personal magnetism, maybe personal money. But that's just like waiting, you're waiting for a savior, in other words. You're waiting for a white knight to come along. Without a white knight, 
I don't think they have any future at all in California. They're going to be down there as a minority below a minority somewhere with a, a few seats in the legislature, a few seats in Congress. That's it. That's going to be their – and they're, if you look at the map of where the recall passed and didn't pass, it basically passed out in the outback country of California, mm-hmm. the, the outer ring, and nowhere else. And that's really their what they've got, the rural base – you know, Kern County and places like that, but not nothing that's has statewide influence. Now, back up from that a little bit, if the Republicans pick up control of Congress again and Kevin Carthy becomes Speaker of the, of the House, that gives them some clout, at least at the national level, mm-hmm. but still doesn't do much for them at the state at the state level. Mm-hmm. And I don't see the Republicans gaining any relevance anytime probably in my lifetime anyway, I think it's going to be a really, really solidly blue state. But the Democrats could overreach. They have been known to do that. And <laughs> they go out and raise taxes by 15 or $20 billion a year to pay for health care or something like that. I don't think they're going to make those kind of mistakes. Uh-huh. I think they, they know that there's, there's a limit somewhere. And you see that in the bills that fall by the wayside every year in the legislature. They come out for the progressive wing of the party oh we're going to do this we're going to do that and that the bills mysteriously disappear yes. rather than being brought to some fruition they know there's a limit to what they can yes. do in terms of taxation and so forth they'll spend whatever money they it comes in the door they hope that there's more coming in the door but any big tax increase no i don't think that's going to happen either because they know that that would could be a death knell for the, them mm-hmm. to go completely and if they try to just tax the rich in california what happens when the rich move all to Florida and Texas? And Florida and Texas. Nevada or someplace yeah. like that. I mean, I anecdotally know of a number of people who have moved their official residences to the other side of the state line into Nevada. Yes. There's a whole colony of expatriate Californians up at Incline Village. Oh, yes. I know some and of them. They, and, their, and their houses that they used to occupy in Hillsboro and whatnot are now their weekend places. Yes. Right? Uh-huh. But they register their cars. They register to vote. They do all this stuff. They register the banking and everything. They put that in Nevada, and they can spend as much time as they want to at their so-called weekend place, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Dan, in the remaining few minutes that we have of our podcast, let, let's come back to the recall itself because the recall mechanism that we have here, California has been a state for 170 years. We just had Admissions Day passed a couple, last week when we celebrated our 171st anniversary as a state. In the 171 years that we've been a state, we've had two gubernatorial recalls, one of Gray Davis that succeeded, the second one of Gavin Newsom, which failed. There has been some talk that the bar to get the recall on the ballot in California is just too low. Do you foresee, in our concluding minutes of the podcast, do you foresee a reform coming down the road to make the recall tighter? Or is that political poison for any politician who tries to monkey around with the the recall mechanism? I won't call it a reform because reform implies it's going to be better. Mm-hmm. I would say an overhaul of changes in the recall system, I think, are a distinct possibility, maybe even a probability. There's a lot of movement for that in the wake of this recall to do something in the legislature. The legislature has more than enough votes, Democratic votes, to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot 
changing the conditions of recall, raising the signature limit, making it, I mean, doing this all sorts of ways you can do it. There's lots of stuff kicking around. And I think there will be a serious effort to do that. And they don't even have to have Gavin Newsom's signature. The constitutional amendments go straight on the ballot if they're passed by the legislature on a two-thirds vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's entirely possible and even probable that something's going to like half. Now, will it be a reform? Or is it a power grab? I wrote a column about this recently because what the more you make recalls difficult. Remember, any recall changes you make not only apply to the governor, but right down to the level of dog catcher. Right. You know, almost that level up and down local government and, and so forth. And if you make it more difficult, what you're saying is that incumbents will be more safer, never have to be worried about a recall in right. California. And all of those incumbents basically are Democrats. Right. So what you're doing is you're you're locking in the Democratic Party, which is already completely powerful in California, to make it even more completely powerful in California by protecting Democrats from recall elections. So is that a reform or is that just a, a power play? And I'll let somebody else talk about that. But I think it, that's the effect of changing the rules of the game. And it's one of my maxims, as I write in print very often, you change the rules of the game, you change the outcome, whether it's in baseball, basketball, football, or politics. Well, Dan, on that note, I want to thank you for having joined us today and bringing the experience and the wisdom of almost 60 years of journalist experience here in California to my listeners here in the, the San Francisco experience. Thank you very much for being with us today, and we'll look forward to having you back again real soon. All right. Thank you for calling. Thank you. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit my website to subscribe to the podcast, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com. It's free to do so. And by subscribing, all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. You can also listen to the previous 192 shows, read my book, peruse my blog, send me an email, or leave a comment. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.